The following audio is from Delta Church in Springfield, Illinois. Our purpose is to proclaim the gospel through the church to a world that needs Jesus Christ. We pray this sermon will aid and encourage your daily walk with Jesus. For more information about Delta, you can visit us online at deltachurch.net. And our text comes from Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. This is God's word. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. This is the word of the Lord, Delta. You may be seated. I'd like to invite up Chance Newingham this morning. Um, Chance will be preaching uh, for us this morning. Uh, many of you know Chance. Chance wears a lot of hats. He's not currently wearing a hat, but uh, he is um, um, he's a faithful expositor of God's Word. Uh, he loves God's Word. Uh, he loves the church. He loves missions. He loves caring for orphans. And um, I know we're going to be blessed by what he has to say to us this morning. So thank you, Chance. Thanks. I, I just want to clarify one point that Brian said. He said Greg's not with us. He's not dead. Um, he's just not here right now. So, just wanted to make that clear. (laughs) Okay, let's pray, and then we'll uh, jump into God's Word together. Lord, we're grateful for an opportunity to pause and focus solely on Your Word. It brings life. It brings change. It is one of the most clear ways that You have communicated Your plan, Your will, Your character to us. And so we pause to soak it in. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, I'd like to think that I'm a a pretty observant guy. I generally notice when somebody gets a haircut or a new hairstyle or a new vehicle or even when somebody loses a little bit of weight. If I'm in your house with any regularity at all, uh, I often notice when new furniture's there, when you've painted a wall, maybe when you have some new decorations. It's just part of the way I'm I'm wired. I just observe things. Here's the deal, though. I can't tell you how many times that I've read this story in Matthew chapter 2, 
and missed a major theme and, and missed something that I was just introduced to a, a couple weeks ago. And now when I look at this passage, I'm like, how did I miss this before? And this morning, I want to look at this story together. And as it unfolds, I want to see if you can spot this, this major theme, this major idea that I missed for so long. So if you're not there already, go ahead and turn to your Bible, Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. What we're going to do is just work our way verse by verse through it, pause, talk a little bit about it, ask some questions, and then continue on. So let's begin again in verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. So we'll pause right there. Our story starts with Jesus being born, right? And automatically we're told where Jesus was born and who was in power when Jesus was born, which is kind of interesting, right? Like if you asked me about my birthday, I would not say, well, I was born in January of 1985 or 84 in Peoria, Illinois, and Ronald Reagan was in his first term as president, right? That's, that's probably not what I'm going to do, but that's what happens here. Well, I think we learn these two details for two big reasons. First one is this, to prove to us that Jesus' birth was a real time and place event. It is anchored in history, okay? It's backed up. Second idea, these details are going to play a big part very soon as we learn a little bit about King Herod, okay? So keep that in mind. We also learn about the wise men here. These, these wise men, whoever they were, they came to visit Jesus. They don't go to the place where Jesus was born, though. The text says they first stopped in Jerusalem, which is about five miles north of where Jesus was actually at. And the text says that once they arrived, they announced the purpose of their visit. They were there to come and worship the king of the Jews. Now, I want to pause here and offer some clarification. As you think about the Christmas story, there are so many wrong ideas out there, especially in like artistic renditions of the Christmas story. And I want to try and bring some clarity to a couple of those. And the first batch that I want to bring clarity to is the idea of the wise men. From where I sit, as I read through this story, four big questions came to mind for me. And here are the four questions. Who were the wise men? How many wise men were there? What star were the wise men following? And then why had the wise men come? So those are the ones I want to address real quick. So the first one, who were the wise men? We don't know. We really don't know. Some translations call them magi, which is where we get the English word for magic. And that leads to the belief that these were, these were wise men who possibly studied the stars like an astrologer would. Some commentators believe that they were kings of sorts, they were royalty perhaps, because a little later when we get to verse 11 and you read about the treasures that were given, gifts like that could only be afford, afforded by royalty. One thing we do know for certain though, there's a lot we don't, what we do know for certain though is that these kings, these people, these men, they were Gentiles. They were outsiders. They came from the Far East. And this is one of the points of the story that I think we we would be remiss if we skipped over this. Right here, there's a hint of the idea that salvation is available to all people. These guys were not Jews. They were outsiders. And if you really think about it, Ginger pointed this out this past week, it's like these wise men are the patriarchs of our faith. They were the first outsiders, the first Gentiles, the first non-Jews to come and worship Jesus. 
Second question then, how many wise men were there? We don't know. Artistic depictions of this story show there were three because that's how many gifts were brought, but truly we're just guessing. We know that it was at least more than one because the text uses the plural form, right? It says there were wise men who came. But beyond that, it's just an estimate. I think it's a fair uh, analysis to say it was three because there were three gifts. It's also possible that there were four dudes and, and one of the guys forgot his gift on his other donkey or camel or something, and he's like, rats, you know, I can't go back home. Um, I've even heard arguments for it's, it's possible that it's two. One wise man brought the gold, and another wise man brought the frankincense and myrrh, two like smelly good type things, you know what I'm talking about, and that those gifts could have been coupled together, but in reality, we don't know. Third question is this, what star were the wise men following? We don't know, right? There are different kinds of answers out there. Some people say that, that they were following a comet's tail. Some say that this was a historic and rare alignment of planets in the sky, which actually happened that could have given this extra thing going on in the night sky. Other people say that God created for that particular moment some light, something in the sky to be followed, kind of like the pillar of fire or cloud in the Old Testament in Exodus 13. I think that fits, right? It's possible. It's God. Fourth question is this, why had the wise men come? This one we know. The text is clear. They had come to worship. We know very little about these guys, but what we can say with confidence is that they came in reverence to give glory to Jesus. Verse 2 tells us this, and a little later in verse 11 we're told this. We know this for sure. So two verses in, Jesus has been born. The wise men are making their way to see him. Well, this news of Jesus' birth did not sit well with one man in particular. Look at verse 3. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired from them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. So King Herod, he's, he's a little upset, right, that this new king, and I'd put a capital K there, this new king had entered the equation. You can imagine if you're King Herod and, and you're in the city and, and you see these large caravans of people and camels coming in, and there's some pretty important people who are part of that entourage. And, and he starts to wonder, okay, hmm, I wonder why they're here. They're probably here to see me, right? Like I'm the, I'm the king. Well, quickly he learns that they are not there for him. In fact, they are in search of another king, right? And this made him angry. He, he was afraid that this little baby might grow up one day to take his power. In his eyes, it, it sounds sort of silly, baby Jesus was a clear and present threat to him. He wanted no rivals. Notice how the text says that King Herod's attitude could be felt all throughout his kingdom. It had like a rippling effect. And I, and I was thinking about that. I'm like, how could that be? Why, why would the people feel what the king was feeling? Well, when a tyrant king is angry, his people are afraid of what he might do. When an oppressive king is alarmed and has been known to fly off the handle and make irrational decisions, when that happens, people are troubled at might what come next. 
Well, in an effort to try and figure out what's going on, King Herod, he assembled all of the religious leaders of the day, and he demanded of them. He's like, guys, listen, you know the Old Testament. Based on the Old Testament and your knowledge, where is this king supposed to have been born? And their answer was unanimous. Bethlehem. Bethlehem. And in fact, the religious leaders, they quote two passages from the Old Testament, Micah chapter 5, verse 2, and 2 Samuel chapter 5, verse 2, both of which were written hundreds of years before Jesus was born. And not only did these quotations give the location of Jesus' birth, they also outlined a couple character traits that would define Jesus. He would be a ruler and a shepherd. You know, it's interesting, you think about those two words you probably wouldn't put those words together very often. Somebody who is a ruler and somebody who's a shepherd. Usually these words aren't connected. In Jesus' day, kings ruled with authority from on high. Shepherds stooped to serve. But Jesus comes and turns things upside down. Jesus came with total dominion over all creation while simultaneously being a shepherd to kneel, heal, and serve. This is good news, right? We hear this and we're like, that's totally awesome. Well, this news did not make King Herod a happy camper, right? But he wasn't ready to reveal his hand. He wasn't going to show his cards just yet. So he pretended to side with the wise men. Look at verse 7. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. That, that's going to come into play a little later. He's like, hey guys, wise guys, when you're here now, when did you leave home? About how long ago was it when you saw that star? Keep that idea in mind. Verse 8, and he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for, for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. <laughs> the wise men, they don't know it yet, but they've been snookered, right? They, they, they've been tricked. In all honesty, you could exchange the word worship in verse 8 with the word kill, and then that verse would accurately describe King Herod's heart. I'm going to do it for you. It says this, and King Herod sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I may come and kill him. History teaches us that King Herod was a wicked, wicked man. I was doing a little bit of research about him this past week, and he murdered his wife, two of her brothers, two of his, of his own sons, and a whole bunch of other people because he thought they were trying to take his power. He didn't want to give it up. This guy, King Herod, he was married at least nine times, history records, and I don't think it's a stretch of the imagination to think that he was married nine times for one of two reasons, if not both reasons. One, to fulfill his own lusts, or two, to strengthen and secure the political ties that he had or was seeking to obtain. And as you read a little later in this chapter, just a few verses after where we stopped, King Herod had all the babies murdered, two and younger, to protect his throne. That's why he wanted to know when the wise man had left, when they had first seen that star. You know, we read this story and we rightly judge Herod, right? I mean, we think to ourselves, this guy is despicable. This is detestable. He, he's not even human. 
we got to remind ourselves that when we look at Scripture as a whole, we are quickly reminded that we aren't much different than Herod. Every human heart is evil. Not just Herod's human heart was evil. Every human heart is evil. Herod's reaction to Jesus here, in a sense, it's, it's a picture of all of us, of all humanity. Evil ultimately stems from self-centeredness and self-righteousness that's found in our hearts. In each one of us, we want the world to orbit around us. We want our kingdom to orbit around us. We want our needs and our desires to be met, just like King Herod did. In a way, then, it's like every one of us has a little King Herod living inside. That's our own sin. And I don't know, when I read that in preparation for this, it made me uncomfortable. It makes me uncomfortable saying it. It's unnerving, right, to think that like what he was capable of, we have that capacity in us because we too are sinful. But we know it's true, right? We know it's true because we find it difficult to pray to the God who loves us. We know it's difficult to believe because we find it hard to focus on Jesus, the most glorious person ever. We know it's true because how many times have we said, oh Lord, I will never forget this good thing that you have done, and then we forget. We know that it's true because we have promised God over and over, Lord, I will never do this thing again, and then two days later we do it. I think there's a little King Herod inside of us. Our King Herod is our sin, it's our evil intentions, but the good news of Jesus is that this King Herod doesn't have to be in charge. We can take him out. We'll come back to that. Our story in Matthew 2 continues when the wise men leave Jerusalem. Look at verse 9. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. So, you know, they're in Jerusalem doing their thing. Somehow, some way, this star appears again, and it leads them to Jesus. Again, there are many depictions of of this where they're led to Jesus, and he's this, like, little tiny baby in a manger. But if we follow, like, the actual historical account, if we follow the timeline of what's going on here, Jesus was probably one to two years old when the wise men came to visit. I I love the repetition of verse 10. It it said, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Like, they were excited. (laughs) Can Can you tell that? You know, I was thinking about it. It's like Walter. I've got four sons, and my youngest is four years old, and And um, to me, how this verse is described here is how Walter would describe something to me. He'd come up and he'd be like, Dad, it was totally awesome. And it was awesome. Like, that's what's going on here, right? Like, they are just super excited. They had traveled so far to meet this infant Savior. They had waited so long, and the time had come. And in the next two verses, they get to meet him face to face. Look at verse 11. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother. And they fell down and worshiped him. Then they opened their treasures. They offered him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. 
So put yourself here in Mary and Joseph's shoes just for a minute, okay? So you're at your house, you're minding your own business, raising your, your two-year-old, and then bam, an entourage of people and camels show up. And the most prominent members of that entourage make their way through that crowd, kneel at your baby, put their face in the dust and worship. And not only that, they brought gifts, right? Crazy gifts, expensive gifts, royal gifts. I did a deep dive a few years ago um, on gold and frankincense and myrrh. I'm like, okay, why these things? Like, why not some diapers or something, right? So here's what I found, okay? Why the gift of gold? In Scripture, gold is used, this is a survey of the entire Bible. Gold is used to magnify God and His greatness. The Ark of the Covenant in the Old Testament was covered inside and out with gold. Some pieces of furniture in the tabernacle, they were gold-plated. Other instruments used in the tabernacle were hammered from pure gold, solid gold. Gold was even sewn into the garments of the high priest's clothing that he wore. Why then was gold given to King Jesus as a gift? Gold symbolized supremacy. And it was brought to Jesus, this royal baby, who was the supreme king of all creation. All authority had been given to him in heaven and on earth, and gold represented this. He was God. What about frankincense? Why the gift of frankincense? Well, in Scripture, in the Old Testament specifically, frankincense was burned in the tabernacle. And when you went to go spend time with the Lord and be in the presence of God, the first thing you would smell was frankincense. And when you left after being in the presence of God, you smelled of frankincense. Frankincense was the aroma of worship. And here it's given to the baby that is due all worship. Frankincense taught the people that King Jesus was to be revered and praised as God himself. Third idea, third gift, what about the gift of myrrh? Myrrh was used in the New Testament, specifically when a body was being prepared for burial. When somebody passed away in those times, they would wash the body, they would wrap them in special garments, and then they would literally pack them with spices and myrrh. So why then was myrrh given to King Jesus as a gift? Myrrh was the perfume that accompanied death. And here it's given to this child who came to die. This fragrant gift is given at the beginning of his life with the intent of highlighting the end of his life. He had come to die. Romans 5.8 reads this way, But God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. When you think about these three gifts in these terms, they're truly tremendous gifts, right? They acknowledge who Jesus was, and they foretold the life that he would live. Only God can do that. And do you know what's crazy cool about these gifts? They were really practical as well. And you, you think, well, how can that be? Like, what's a, a baby going to do with a gold bar? Like, like chew on it, right? Probably. What's mom and dad going to do with that gold bar? They're going to provide for their family. 
many scholars believe that while Mary, Joseph, and Jesus had to hide out for a couple years in Egypt while they were hiding from King Herod, many scholars believe that while they were hiding, they sold these items so they could be provided for. God provided for His Son and His Son's earthly parents through His gifts that were brought by these wise men while also powerfully communicating who Jesus was and why He had to come. That's the genius of God, right? So what are we to do with this story? I I think you can go in a variety of different directions when it comes to application of this text. But I want to do something this morning. I want to focus maybe on a theme that you've thought of, maybe not. This, This is what I was talking about from the beginning, something that I hadn't seen before. This is what I had not encountered until recently. War. There is a war taking place here in Matthew chapter 2. Two kings are pitted against one another. If you read the text closely, you see this. King Herod and the kingdom of evil were at war with King Jesus and the kingdom of God. Think back to the, to the text. King Herod, he was concerned with his ruling. He was concerned with ruling his own life, keeping his own power. He was a king of tyranny, deception, fury, and murder, right? The people were afraid. That's, that's tyranny. Deception, he lied to the wise men in an effort to protect himself. Fury, he killed those babies because he didn't want to lose his power. King Herod here faithfully represents the kingdom of evil. And then there's sweet and lowly King Jesus. King Jesus was concerned with ruling as a shepherd for others in peace. He was a king of tenderness and protection, truth and mercy. King Jesus here, he faithfully represented the kingdom of God. Now as you hear this, and I hear this, we have to ask ourselves, which kingdom am I a part of? King Herod and the kingdom of evil or King Jesus and the kingdom of God. You know, when Herod heard about King Jesus, he was really troubled, right? And so should we be troubled when we hear the news of King Jesus. Psalm 24, 1 reads this way, The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. The world and all its people belong to Him. Herod's kingdom, all kingdoms, my kingdom, your kingdom, the kingdoms of our lives, they aren't just threatened by the birth of Jesus. They are doomed. Revelation eleven fifteen reads this way. L- listen to this. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ, and he shall reign forever. All kingdoms will fall except for the kingdom of Christ. And so I ask, which kingdom are you a part of? Are you a part of the kingdom of evil where you seek prestige, riches, comfort, ease, happiness, selfishness, lust, 
and pride? Or are you a part of King Jesus' kingdom, the kingdom of God, where you seek and are given love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control? If you are here this morning and you are in Christ, you're a part of the kingdom of God. You have been saved by the Prince of Peace, as Isaiah 9, 6 says. Your salvation is secure. And yet you know that ever so often a very little King Herod, your sin, appears now and then. The remedy Die to self once again. Rely on King Jesus' righteousness. Remind yourself of his work on the cross and ask the Holy Spirit for strength and guidance. If you're here this morning, though, and you are not a Christian, you are a part of the kingdom of evil. There are only two categories you're in darkness. You're lost, but I have good news. You can come to the kingdom of God because of Jesus' work on the cross. Just like the wise men who were outsiders were welcomed into God's family, so can you be welcomed into the family of God. For those of you who, who are right now a part of the kingdom of evil, here's what you need to know. This is what has been done on your behalf. God created your first parents, Adam and Eve. He made them in his image. Life was perfect for them. They had everything they could ever want or need, but they sinned and they rebelled. They said, God, that's not enough. We want more. And that sin not only separated Adam and Eve, it separated Adam and Eve from God, and it separated the rest of humankind from God. But God still loved them. He still wanted relationship with them. But for that relationship to be restored, justice had to be paid. A penalty had to be paid. Punishment was necessary. But because of his great love, rather than us bearing that penalty, he sent his son Jesus to show us how to live and then die in our place. Jesus, King Jesus, he died for you so that you would not be a part of the kingdom of evil. And he rose from the grave showing his power over Satan, sin, and death. And he ascended to heaven. And his word teaches now today that any person who sees their sin, recognizes it, turns from it, accepts Christ's death on the cross, repents and walks in new life, that that person will be given grace. And that person will have good works completed in and through them by God. And then at the end of their life, because they have handed their life over to God and his kingdom, they then go to God's kingdom of heaven where he reigns forever. This is what has been done for you. This is your invitation to the kingdom of God. All you have to do is hear this message, believe it, confess your sin, repent of your sin, and follow Jesus in submission. Which kingdom are you a part of? <coughs> God, we are grateful for razor-sharp passages like this. They reveal to us 
the desperate need that we have for you. God, all human beings, we have a natural resistance to, we have a hatred of the claims that you have on our lives. We cannot remove that on our own. It requires an act of God. It requires something supernatural. God, I pray that you would remove that hatred, that resistance, so that we might be welcomed into and devoted to your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen.